Welcome to Ahead in the Cloud, where business leaders share what they've learned on their cloud journey. I'm Chad Watt, Emphasis Knowledge Institute researcher and writer, here today with Darren Kane, Chief Security Officer with NBN Australia. NBN is a publicly owned corporation with the mission of making broadband internet available across all of Australia. Darren has been CSO at NBN for eight years. He has nearly two decades of security management and law enforcement experience with groups including the Australian Federal Police, the Australian Securities and Investment Commission, and Telstra Corporation. Welcome, Darren. Thanks, Chad. I really appreciate the opportunity to have a chat to you this morning. Great to spend some time with you today. For our listeners who may not be familiar NBN is a government-owned business with a mission. Tell me about that mission and give me a quick status update. So the NBN is Australia's government-owned broadband network. The NBN has connected this continent to a single, secure and resilient network of broadband connectivity. Our network out here carries more than 86% of the nation's data and it touches more than 17 million people every day with more than 8.6 million homes and businesses currently connected and a further 12 million premises ready to connect. It's an interesting time for us all at the moment as we shift from building the network and focusing on being a wholesaler to those in the community who actually interact with us through retailers. So you're kind of moving from this kind of build-out phase to an operate, optimize, and interact phase. How does that impact your day-to-day activities and your mission as the chief security officer there? The MBN's mission or our purpose is, is basically to lift the digital capability of all Australians to actually ensure that we minimise the digital divide between those that can have a connectivity and those that cannot. Now, to do that, we have to build a network which started 14 years ago in 2009, and that's nearly to the day. So the 9th of April 2009 was when we started the build, and today we're moving across to running a network. As MBN grows, the target on our back grows, which means the target on my back grows. That means as we connect more and more people, the role we have as critical infrastructure providers and owners of Australia's biggest critical infrastructure project and the reliance on connectivity means that we have to ensure that we are reliable, that we are resilient, and we are secure. Now, to achieve those, it means that we have to be ever vigilant against all sorts of issues, breakages, uh, line interruption, but most importantly, in this context, is those that may wish to do us ill will or those that don't follow a pathway of policy and guidelines to ensure nothing happens to the company. And my job is to make sure that is achieved. Your first work, Darren, was as a detective sergeant with the Australian Federal Police. Give us an idea of that work and how it prepared you for work in telecom and information security. I noticed that in your opening, you mentioned two decades, and um, I'll just qualify that. So I, I spent almost two decades, just on 19 years, with the Australian Federal Government. The first 13, it was with the Australian Federal Police, where I rose to the rank of Detective Sergeant. And I largely spent that time originally wanting to, to work in close personal protection. So a bodyguard, if you like, for our senior political figures and, and other VIPs. I quickly realised that that was limited. It wasn't as much action as you first think. So then I I actually pivoted, if you like, which is a word for the 2020s, and I got myself into a a role which you would call global and and national organised crime and large-scale drug interdiction into this country. And I spent nearly 11 years in those roles, achieving the rank of detective sergeant and and having a very exciting and and a learning time um, working in an environment with committed and passionate folk and really believing in that mission. I then did six and a half years with the Australian Securities and Investments Commission, which is your SEC. 
again looking at largely organised crime in our financial markets and managing criminal activity. How is it that uh, business leaders need to think differently about security in their technology business today? A business leader, a CEO, a COO, someone in the C-suite, has to not abrogate the accountability totally to their security lead. They have to invest themselves in what it is the actual SME running security is doing on their behalf. Now, I can guarantee that if the CFO was left to their own devices and all that'll all be sorted, the C-suite, particularly the CEO, would feel a little naked. They'd want to know what was going on in that accountability. It is the same for security. It's become mainstream. So from my perspective, when I actually speak with the C-suite, I start to use language that resonates with them. And that's one of the things, Chad, that we in the industry have to address. The language we use, attack surface, state-based actors, all of those sorts of pieces of language that they struggle to understand and put in context. We have to eradicate that from our vocabulary. Give me an example of something you do differently or something you advise people in a role like yours to do differently. I never use the term insider threat. Okay. What do you say instead? I spend hundreds of thousands of dollars trying to locate the best staff I possibly can to introduce to a company that I love and is high performing. I do background checks. I give them passes to get into corporate entities and into operational sites. Because they have a password, I allow them onto our networks. And yet as soon as they start work with us, almost every organisation that I actually engage with considers them a potential insider threat on the basis that they've got that access. And I go, well, why would you call them a threat? What have they done wrong? Instead of calling them insider threat, I call them a trusted insider. It's the same aspect of what I do to actually manage the risk of that individual. But instead of them being a IT, they're a TI. There's a simple example of giving the C-suite comfort that we are an enabler instead of someone who only worries about the downside. I really like that because as an insider, I feel like sometimes in some organizations I've been treated as an insider threat. I'm just trying to accomplish my task and my mission and I get stopped from doing that for some reason that is not fully explained to me. Whereas if, Darren, you come to me, Chad, you're a trusted insider. These are the tools you have to do the job. And this is why you can't use this thing, you know, in this context. It just feels like a different conversation. So that's great. And Chad, to pick up on that point, the C-suite and boards particularly currently sitting under the spectre of the environmental, social and governance movements, the ESG, if you like. So incredibly important that the way we manage our workforce fits that. And if we actually have this concern or threat about almost everybody we've allowed access to, it doesn't sit well in the language of board and C-suite, whereas a trusted insider certainly does. Darren, give me your threat level assessment. What does security look like in 2023? I think this is as a difficult period, as I can remember, the Indo-Pacific issues with China and Taiwan, certainly Ukraine and the Russian invasion there, we've got very, very active cybercrime gangs all around the world, and some are actually taking nation-state sides. We've got nation-state. So the actual geopolitical theatre we're dealing with has never been as active. So what do you do about that as a security leader? The one thing that's really focusing the group here, and I think our industry globally, is supply chain. We've all utilised cloud software as a service, in-source, outsource, MSSP, so uh, software as a provider, so security services as a provider. And it's a, an effective and correct way 
to get a high-performing business to run most efficiently and effectively. But what we're now seeing is through supply chain that we've got to ensure that they are working on the same protocols that we internally are managing our business. And that's becoming the challenge. You're describing something I heard uh, recently talking about how so much of the security work is about extensive compliance hygiene work around not just what your team is doing and what your trusted insiders are doing, but every tool that they're using down the line also has that level of hygiene, if you will. It's hard, important work. How do you do it right? And how do you get leaders and you know individual contributors to buy into that? Language, communication, style, and understanding of the risk. So continually pushing C-suite to appreciate the risk environment, threat environment, and what controls we're utilising to actually manage. I think one of the most important things you do, Chad, is to work with your board and C-suite to clearly identify risk appetite for the organisation. Have them understand what their risk appetite is in relation to your top 7 to 10 to 12 risks as it pertains to security. And I do want to come back and talk about security and not just cyber. And then once you've established where the risk appetite is, then work with those organisations, your internal organisation, to then address those risks that are significant that sit outside appetite and help them better understand why they sit outside appetite and what controls we're utilising to actually either reduce the risk if we can or to accept the risk because we've put mitigating controls in place or the risk we have when we put a control in place to try and mitigate the risk, which is supply chain. And it's all down to taking the time and asking them to invest in what it is that I do for them. Think about your younger, newer employees. What's different about the world they've grown up in than the world that you and I have grown up in, where there's kind of an analog that's transitioned into digital? These young folks have only existed in a digital world. What is it that they get and what is it that they need to learn from us? I love this. I love the way this podcast is going. This is right in my sweet spot, hitting zone, if you like. The digital natives we refer to are these kids that have grown up with a PlayStation console in their hands, the familiarity and feel of an iPhone, and these kids with talent falling out of trees. Okay, They probably do not need to go to high school or even to tertiary to actually learn the skills that they've developed naturally so they can engage on social. Simple as that. They interact every day using the tools. So my first piece of advice is understand the risks. Now, Chad, I don't know whether you have children, but I can guarantee you that you didn't throw them the keys to the motor car, said work out how to drive yourself. The dangers of a kid on a, on a motorway or in a, in a street and they've never driven a motor vehicle before. But yet I would guarantee that when you actually handed the iPhone or the connectivity device to an individual, you probably believe that they could work it out themselves and or they already knew all about it. Now, the first thing I'd do is sit a newcomer to the security industry down and talk to them about the industry as a broad church, as all of the opportunities that exist across the industry, rather than purely focus on cyber defence, pen testing, data science, data engineering. Help them understand what goes into managing security risk. And there are enormous roles and opportunities that will give them promotion and an ongoing career that they haven't considered. Let's go to AI and then let's come back to the human side of security. We talked about threat level in the geopolitical sense. 
put your security hat on and let's talk about AI, generative AI, and all these kind of very rapid, very emerging technologies related to transformer architecture, large language models, and chat. How does that impact security? How does how do you prepare for that with security? Chad, look, I, I think if you're going to talk about this, you're going to have to look at a generative AI around the evolution of technology. Now, you're old enough, as am I, to remember the personal computers in the 80s and how the graphical user interface, the GUI, changed everything. And along came Windows. You remember when the internet was in its infancy in the early to mid-90s. And then, of course, there was the mobile phones became really commercially available. And I remember driving around in a police car with the old brick Motorola banana and before that, the one that sat in the console. Or the release of the smartphones in the early 2000s, socials, 0405. AI is this decade's evolution. So that's the first thing, except that there is so much noise at the moment around the concerns and worries and where it'll take us and what it will do. But if you think about those evolutionary points I spoke about, there was the same discussion. There's an opportunity for our industry, particularly the security risk industry, to maybe even catastrophize the risks that are represented by AI machine-based learning. And I see that and I understand that. But I also think you look up and you understand the opportunities that AI may present. And we're seeing it all the time in cyber defense around automation and user-based behavior analytics. So always remember the yin and the yang is my message there. Look, there was a great article by Bill Gates. And if your listeners haven't read it before, it's called The Age of AI Has Begun. And it's really worth a read because um, he talks about the new technologies like AI that is so disruptive that it's bound to make people uneasy. And he raises those hard questions about the workforce, legal system, privacy and bias. But then he also talks about where it could take us and what the opportunities are. So all I'm asking for is balance. I absolutely believe AI and generative AI will represent risk and new risks that we haven't even thought about yet. And I don't think all of those people that are cautioning us are wrong. But also new controls and better automation will bring opportunities to be smart around those controls and how automation can complement the controls. So always understand that with generative technology advancement comes risk, which is my job. But then I also look at it, well, what's the upside? Where's it going? The fog of cybersecurity paranoia has the CEO driving cautiously, jumping and overreacting to any potential perceived threat on the horizon, whereas a good cybersecurity clean would give you the view through that fog and allow you to perform as optimally as possible. I remember 15 years ago when I had a very significant role at Telstra, very similar to the role I have here. I would be desperate for my one-up, the CFO or the CEO, to be fully engaged in what it is that I did for the company. Back in those days, to your point, security risk, cybersecurity was something that really made techs in hoodies behind green screens in the basement managed. And I think that the industry got into a habit of continually catastrophizing the downside of what we did to assure that we got resourcing and recognition for the important role we played. So we actually created different language, a state actor, attack surface, insider threat, bad actor. And we used all this sort of language because it made us a little special and ensured that somebody actually had to follow up and ask the question, well, what does that mean? So it ensured that they engaged with us. Now, on the flip side in the 20s, we're arguing that, oh, God, bloody board and, and the C-suite, and they're all over us. They want to know more about what we're doing. We've sold the risk incredibly well. Now they want to know how we're managing it. I welcome that. I think that's wonderful. I think that the engagement and the support we get from C-suite and board on how we're actually managing the risk is incredibly important. 
it gives us that recognition and the support and resources we need to manage it effectively. So I wouldn't criticise that. What I would do is say, well, okay, how can we do it better? How can we improve on the way we engage with board and C-suite to make things easier? And we start with communication and language. And that's the eternal question, because there's no question that the uh, opponents will always be looking for ways to improve and bring novel threats to the board as well. So great. Darren, thank you. Do you have time for a quick lightning round? Yeah. Okay. We're going to talk about cops, computers, and movies. What film got police work right or the closest to correct? I always loved Stakeout with Emilio Estevez and Richie Dreyfus. To be really fair, Chad, by far and away, that was the fun we had. That was what actually happened. I don't know who provided the actual inspiration and or consultative input to, to those producers, directors of that movie, but a lot of what you see on that film does actually happen in observation posts. So I thought Stake Out was great. There's one to dial back up. Okay, so what movie has a realistic portrayal of hackers and cybersecurity? You go back to the old sneakers and, and Fireball and a couple of others. But to be honest, the one that I really liked is actually a television series. It may have been on Foxtel over here, so one of your streaming services coming out of the BBC called Cobra. And that was a, a senior government think tank, if you like, managing a solar flare that took down all of the energy and computer globally. And it was all about how do you respond. It's called Cobra, C-O-B-R-A. That, for me, is about, well, what happens if we lose energy? What does that do to our technology platforms? And it was a global issue, and it shut down health, education, logistics. And it's probably a real thought-provoking series and recommend that those interested in the podcast chase it down and have a look at it. Very good, very good. What is one thing about security work that screenwriters typically get wrong? The green screens. We still see the images of the person in the hoodie with the green behind the green screen. And, you know, you get the glow of the digital screen in the face of the individual, which you can't generally see the face. And, um, and nowadays, some of these crooks online are pimply-faced college kids. They're out there and they're promoting what it is they're doing. Hmm. They don't necessarily sit in um, boiler rooms and so forth in, in Eastern Europe. They're, they're all over the globe. Interesting. So, Darren, if you were cast in a movie, do you want to play the sergeant, the hacker, or the CSO? I'd like to play the CEO. <laughs> Good answer. Probably a little like if I was still the sergeant, I'd want to play the sergeant. I think I'd be a great hacker. I've got the face for it. But I think at the moment, I think the upside is, is to um, celebrate and actually promote the role of the CSO. Hmm. What you'll find is an individual will drift through the C-suite and become the CEO from this role. And you'll see that happen quite regularly going forward. Thank you, Darren. Thank you very much for your time today. Thanks, Chad. And thanks for the opportunity. I love your podcast. Great. Thank you so much. This podcast is part of our collaboration with MIT Tech Review in partnership with Emphasis Cobalt. Visit our content hub at technologyreview.com to learn more about how businesses across the globe are moving from cloud chaos to cloud clarity. Be sure you follow Ahead in the Cloud wherever you get podcasts. You can find more details in our show notes and some links to some TV shows, I think, and transcripts as well at emphasis.com slash IKI. That's in our podcast section. Thanks to our producers, Catherine Burdett, Christine Calhoun, and Yulia Dabari. Doe Bigley is our audio technician. And I'm Chad Watt with the Emphasis Knowledge Institute signing off. Until next time, keep learning and keep sharing.